Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Thursday, April 11th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Warren raises $6 million. Warren releases yet more tax returns, and everybody's got something to say about that. Cory Booker wants to fix bias in algorithms. Julian Castro plans a big bet rally that could make his campaign. And Tulsi Gabbard has met the DNC criteria for the debates. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Today, ahead of the FEC deadline on Monday, Senator Elizabeth Warren's campaign released her Q1 fundraising totals. And what did she bring in? Just over $6 million. Now, if you'll recall Tuesday's show, I covered Amy Klobuchar's raise of $5.2 million, which at that time put her ahead of Cory Booker and overall in fourth place, according to candidates who have officially released their numbers. Note, O'Rourke kind of sort of released some numbers, but I'm not counting him for right now. Obviously, because of how math works, Warren's raise today puts her in fourth place overall, pushing Klobuchar down to fifth. Now, yes, Warren entered the race before Klobuchar and Booker, but still, money is money. So again, the question remains, how much is $6 million? Obviously, it's a lot if you're using it to buy sandwiches, but what do we make of this number in the context of a primary campaign? Well, the first hot take is probably the best in this case. Roger Lau, who is Warren's campaign manager, sent an email to supporters yesterday alongside the announcement. He also posted that email to Medium, link in the show notes. Let me read you part of what Lau had to say. Quote, I won't sugarcoat it. We were outraised by some other candidates in the presidential primary this first quarter. You might have seen some of the big numbers in the headlines, from $7 million up to $18 million. End quote. But of course, Lau doesn't stop there. A few paragraphs up, he notes that Warren actually has $11 million in cash on hand, which significantly outpaces both Klobuchar and Booker, two candidates who have also announced their cash on hand, but leaves Warren way behind frontrunner Bernie Sanders at this point, just like literally everybody else. And again, like Klobuchar, a bunch of Warren's campaign funding, $10.4 million of it to be exact, according to the New York Times, is leftover funding from Warren's Senate campaign, which she does get to add into this new pot of money. Anyway, what else did Lau do to put Warren's numbers in context? He said, quote, Elizabeth decided not to do any closed-door events with wealthy donors or call time, where candidates typically call wealthy people and personally ask them to donate. 99% of our donations were $200 or less. That isn't a coincidence. That was by design. End quote. He went on to cite figures about, and this is actually something we should be counting because we all live in the future now, the number of selfies that Warren has taken with folks at rallies. That number is about 13,000, by the way. Plus, more conventional counts like the number of events she's held and states she's visited during her campaign. For the record, Lau lists 48 events across 12 states plus Puerto Rico, which is, objectively, a lot. It's April right now, and yet, 48 events. Don't try this at home unless you are trying to run for president. Now, from the Washington Post story again, quote, Warren has built one of the largest campaign operations so far, with more than 170 staffers now, about half of them in the four earliest voting states. But Warren made a calculated gamble weeks ago to eschew large donor events, hoping that her ability to differentiate herself from candidates such as Harris 
and run an overtly grassroots campaign would offset the loss of income, end quote. And Lau proactively responded to that notion in his email-slash-medium post, saying, quote, We don't have to match other candidates dollar for dollar, but we do need a strong enough grassroots base to be able to keep Elizabeth's voice front and center in this race, end quote. And that is, for me, the real heart of the story here. Yes, it is spin from a campaign manager, but it is also a truthful way to state the problem and the opportunity. Warren, like all the candidates, needs money. Yes, there's dollars and numbers of donors and rankings and all of that stuff, but all of that is supposed to be in service of ideas and issues and contact with voters. And Warren, at least in this field, is somebody who is actually spending a ton of time and money and effort on that stuff, even though her fundraising puts her, you know, only in the top five. That is not bad at all for such a huge field. All right, so continuing with the Warren report, yesterday Warren released her 2018 tax return. As I pointed out in this show recently, she had already released 10 years of returns at the end of 2018 before she even made her candidacy official. Now we have 11 years. Now, in that exact same Washington Post story I was just quoting in the previous segment, writer Matt Weiser looks into the latest Warren tax return and comes up with some numbers. And what do those tell us? Well, in 2018, Warren's total family income was north of $900,000 which is a whole lot more than candidates like Kirsten Gillibrand and Jay Inslee, who have disclosed their recent finances. Those candidates are more in the 200 to 300k range, which is probably exactly why they are so willing to tell us about it early. Now, 200 to $300,000 a year is not shabby at all, but it's also not, you know, like millionaire every year kind of territory. And keep in mind, these are married couples filing jointly, so you've got that spouse's income in there too. The Post breaks down some salient numbers in the war in return. Now, I'm going to round these numbers in the upcoming quote so they can actually be listened to and made sense of without too many numbers, you know? The actual numbers are written out right down to the dollar, so go read the story if you need that level of detail. There's a link in the show notes. Quote, According to her returns, Warren and her husband, Bruce Mann, reported earning $905,000 in total income, including $176,000 from her Senate salary and $325,000 from her books. She and Mann, a Harvard Law School professor, paid $231,000 in taxes. They reported donating $50,000 to charity. End quote. I just want to mention that we are in a field where Jay Inslee's total family income is less than what Warren paid in taxes last year. Now that is a topic for debate. Warren released a statement commenting on her income taxes. She said, quote, There's a crisis of faith in government, and that's because the American people think the government works for the wealthy and well-connected, not for them. And they're right. I've put out 11 years of my tax returns because no one should ever have to guess who their elected officials are working for. Doing this should be law, end quote. One more note on this. I thought that Warren had the record for releasing tax returns in this cycle, but surprise, you can't count out Joe Biden for this stuff. He has already released 18 years worth of returns covering the period up to 2015, 
because obviously he's been in a ton of previous elections. But because he hasn't announced yet, he has not commented on whether he'll release anything newer. But you know, 18 years plus the last three years, that's going to be really hard to beat. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. One of the cool things you can do when you're a sitting senator who's running for president is to sponsor some legislation. It's kind of a twofer in the situation. You're, you know, doing your day job, and that's a good thing, but it also makes campaign news, too. So yesterday, Senator Cory Booker co-sponsored a bill. He joined its primary sponsor, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, and co-sponsor Yvette Clark of New Jersey to introduce the Algorithmic Accountability Act. This is a new law that, if enacted, would allow the Federal Trade Commission to have real oversight of algorithms that tech companies develop for a variety of purposes. It would only cover large tech companies, those that are already regulated by the FTC, that make more than $50 million per year, or data brokers that handle data covering more than a million people or a million consumer devices. So small businesses are exempt, and that is smart. You know, this is a very 2019 story. Algorithms determine much of what we see online, whether it's job postings or pictures or search results, or even matches on dating websites, or obviously all advertisements. That stuff is all determined by computer code, and the vast majority of that code never has to be audited unless the company feels like it. Now, the aim of this act is to require companies to identify bias in their own algorithms in addition to examining them for privacy and security risks. And based on my work in another Ride Home Network podcast, uh, this is a direct response to Facebook. And, you know, also Twitter, and definitely Amazon, and Google is in there too, and a little bit of Apple. Basically, name a big tech company, and this bill would affect them, big time. But mostly it's about Facebook, because that is the tech giant that for years now has been embroiled in scandal after scandal related to the way it allows automated systems to develop and enforce hidden biases in things like housing advertisement and political speech and fake news and probably stuff we don't even know about yet. Anyway, enough with the computer stuff. Let's get back to the politics. Andrew Ferguson, who is a law professor at the University of the District of Columbia, is also the author of the book The Rise of Big Data Policing, and talked to NBC News about this legislation. Quote, This type of federal effort will be critical for maintaining control over companies using personal data for commercial gain. Equally importantly, I hope the bill sparks a national conversation about how to best set up local, state, and additional federal laws to police algorithmic decision-making. Underneath the data is democracy, and our democratic leaders need to act. End quote. 
In a press release from Senator Wyden's office, Cory Booker wrote an extensive statement about why this matters to him personally. I'm going to read that to you now. Quote, 50 years ago, my parents encountered a practice called real estate steering, where black couples were steered away from certain neighborhoods in New Jersey. With the help of local advocates and the backing of federal legislation, they prevailed. However, the discrimination that my family faced in 1969 can be significantly harder to detect in 2019. Houses that you never know are for sale, job opportunities that never present themselves, and financing that you never become aware of, all due to biased algorithms. This bill requires companies to regularly evaluate their tools for accuracy, fairness, bias, and discrimination. It's a key step toward ensuring more accountability from the entities using software to make decisions that can change lives. End quote. So far on this podcast, I don't think I've actually mentioned Julian Castro's name. He's polling at around 1% and his fundraising numbers are not high, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at what he's up to. Castro is planning a big rally in San Antonio, his hometown, on the same day that President Trump will be in Texas holding private fundraisers of his own in both Houston and, wait for it, San Antonio. A story in Politico calls this kind of counter-programming, quote, pulling a Beto, end quote, because Beto O'Rourke did a very similar thing in El Paso and ended up getting split-screen coverage on cable TV news. Part of why O'Rourke got a bump from that was that Trump couldn't resist talking about him, tossing out an insult. And that line gave O'Rourke a new tool in his campaign. Now, there is a difference in Castro's approach, given that the rallies he's trying to counter are technically private, and they'll take place in the afternoon while Castro's rally is in the evening. But still, this does provide a convenient media narrative and a way for Castro to basically dunk on the president even if the president doesn't proactively take the bait and mention his name. If you're not familiar with Castro as a candidate, he was mayor of San Antonio for five years before being appointed as Obama's housing and urban development secretary. That background with HUD and his home state being Texas both put him in a great position to provide a strong position on immigration. Castro is calling his event the People First Rally, And San Antonio is actually a city that has been in the current president's crosshairs for quite a while. Back in January, Trump claimed that San Antonio had built a border wall in order to reduce its crime rate. That is, okay, well, this is a family podcast, so let's just say that's a bunch of hooey. It's flim-flam of the first order. Why? Well, first, San Antonio did not build any such wall. So that's just uh, flim-flam, again. And it's 150 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border. So both elements of the president's statement were completely wrong. That's the actual truth. If you attend or watch Castro's rally, pay attention to what he says about that claim and what the claim itself says about the credibility of the president on immigration. Point being, Julian Castro being an actual Texan and former mayor of a major Texas city with plenty of local and federal government experience under his belt, actually knows what he's talking about here. The stakes are high right now, and Castro is pinning a lot on this rally. Here's a bit from that story in Politico. Quote, Castro has said he hasn't yet met the Democratic National Committee's 65,000 donor requirement for the debates this summer. Between that and his low polling numbers, 
Castro is currently at risk of not meeting the criteria for making the stage. A successful rally could serve as a springboard for Castro's campaign, since it segues into his CNN town hall Thursday night with Don Lemon, a widely praised performance by South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg at his CNN town hall last month gave him a significant boost. He raised $600,000 within the next 24 hours and finished the first quarter with a $7 million haul. End quote. And here are a few choice words from Castro himself in a campaign invitation issued for the rally. Quote, I'm throwing an anti-Trump, people-first rally to give him the welcome he deserves, an overwhelming showing of opposition. I want Trump to know, when you come into our house and insult our immigrant brothers and sisters, the consequences will be dire. End quote. Last up today, news from Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. On Twitter, she announced that she will appear in the Democratic primary debates, having crossed the 65,000 donor threshold set by the DNC as one of its two paths for making the cut. This means she will be on the debate stage in June, despite being in the lower money and lower name recognition ranks of the major candidates in the race. She is also, according to my notes, the youngest major candidate in the race so far, just a few months younger than Pete Buttigieg. So we will see multiple millennial candidates on the primary debate stage, at least two that we know about now, and perhaps more to come. In her tweet announcing this milestone, Gabbard wrote, quote, I'm extremely grateful that over 65,000 of you have now donated to our campaign, ensuring our voice will be heard in the upcoming debates. For a small campaign that doesn't accept PAC money, I knew we had to rely fully on the power of the people. Aloha and mahalo, end quote. That's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I've been your host, Chris Higgins. You can find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. I want to leave you today with a quote Nancy Pelosi gave to the Associated Press yesterday. She said, quote, Would I love to see two women nominated? Yes. Would I like to see one? Yes. But it doesn't mean that if there isn't one, that it's not a ticket we should all get behind. End quote. And I'll talk to y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow.